This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. On this Labor Day, one of the things that we are noticing is fewer and fewer Americans are, well, laboring. It's not because they don't want to. A lot of people are just aging out. We are talking about baby boomers, of course, a huge part of the workforce, a dominating feature of American culture, too, for half a century. But now they're leaving, or worse, dying off. And the question is, who's going to replace them? And what do companies have to do to deal with this? Dan Tynan has been editor-in-chief of Yahoo Tech and executive editor of PC World, recently wrote a piece for Forbes about the great retirement tsunami. Dan, good to have you with us. I'm glad we caught you before you retired. (laughs) I don't think I'll ever retire, Gil. Uh, my plan is to die at my keyboard, head down <laughs> with the keys pressed into my forehead. That, that, that wasn't my plan, <laughs> but it seems to be the way it's going. So <laughs> let's, let's get into this retirement tsunami. That brings up some pretty strong pictures. How big a deal is this for companies? Well, it's a pretty big deal, actually. Uh, you know, every statistic will tell you uh, that, you know, there's just going to be a huge shortage. I mean, there already is a huge shortage of workers, right, because of various reasons post-pandemic. But, um, you know, by 2033, uh, the U.S. workforce, the population, uh, 61% of the U.S. Uh, population will be part of the workforce, which is the lowest it's been in decades. Um, by 2024, uh, we will have peak, what's called peak 65 which is 12,000 people a day in the U.S. will be turning 65 years old. So, you know, it's the baby boom uh, and it's going boom. It's going away. And so organizations kind of have to deal with that and, and, you know, they have to figure out a strategy for it. It's not just in terms of, wow, there's not enough people to do the work. It's also there's a lot of institutional knowledge, which is, you know, at home, feed them the ottoman, watching the ball game. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And, you know, it's funny. It's because, uh, you know, this has been a thing in technology for a long time, uh, you know, because a lot of very big companies, very big Fortune 100 companies and financial companies 
still operate mainframes, right? They still have all of their data on these really old, what's called aging iron. Uh, and they're written in Fortran and COBOL. And you know, the number of people who actually know how to do Fortran and COBOL is rapidly decreasing, <laughs> but they, they still need them. So, yeah, so, you know, that's a classic case of institutional knowledge disappearing uh, and organizations kind of have to adapt pretty quickly to it. Now, the answer to this obviously would be, well, obvious, I'm saying, even though most companies probably won't do it. But, hey, before these guys leave, before they retired, rather than just, you know, get them a cake and push them out the door, uh, we should have them mentoring some younger employees. Yeah, the younger employees are going to know a lot of things, especially in terms of tech that the older people don't. But there's a lot of things about what our company does, who our markets are, and all of that, that these people who are about to just leave are taking with them. And and we need to impart some of that knowledge. I, I don't see a lot of that. Well, you know, uh, I think we'll see more of it. Uh, certainly it is a, you know, a good thing to do. And it can be cross-mentoring, right? I mean, you can pair someone who's about to retire with a new worker, and the new worker can tell them, how to use, you know, Instagram or Snapchat on their phone. And that's a reason why a lot of companies, you know, a lot of people when they quote retire, unquote, then go back and work for the same company they retired from. And a lot of that is a knowledge transfer. You know, we want to capture um, all of the benefits of what this person has done for the last 30 or 40 years. In another segment of this broadcast where you and I talk about AI, we talk about how this is going to become skills-based. So if I'm matching the people who have left because of retirement, I have to know specifically what skills they had that my younger workers coming in did not have or that they might have that I just can't find any younger workers to do. <laughs> yeah, you know, you do you know, kind of need to codify, you need to document. And it's something that people hate doing, uh, you know, but it's kind of a necessary thing. Uh, one of the other things that um, just starting to happen is, you know, with AI is, you know, you can train AI uh, to do to help younger workers or less experienced workers by kind of recording the activities of older, more experienced workers. And then that the AI learns from the older, more experienced workers and can teach the younger ones. Uh, and there's a recent study by folks at Stanford and MIT uh, for a call center uh, where they showed this happening, where, uh, you know, they were able to capture the institutional knowledge of the more experienced workers and then transfer it to the younger ones. It's an old science fiction trope of, of trying to, you know, capture somebody's brains on a computer chip or, you know, implanting the head of another human being in order to keep that going. But in, in a way, that's what's facing companies, because it's not just a matter of, oh, all these people are retiring. It's a matter of these new people are coming in and they may have all kinds of training and background and various things, but maybe not in specifically what this company does or where it's headed. Absolutely. Yes. So, I mean, that is another reason why, you know, even after people retire, they do come back, right? They are, they continue to be a resource uh, for their former employees or just for anybody. You know, uh, I know my personal experience, my father was an aerospace engineer. He retired at age 65 and then continued to work. <laughs> so, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of that. A, a lot more, you know, people staying in the workforce on a part-time basis uh, as a result. What's the biggest problem for companies as they face this retirement tsunami? What What's the thing that may hit them that they may not be prepared for? Well, I think there's going to be a gap between, you know, losing, you know, full-time employees and being able to automate the things they used to do. I think we, we may be in a two or three year period where companies, you know, may have to rely a lot more on temporary workers. Uh, there may be a lot more emphasis on the gig economy to get for fill-in, uh, you know, or they may have to just accept a lower, you know, level of employee than they would have hired in the past. 
But, you know, I do think that, you know, in a few years, they'll have figured it out and they'll have automated a lot of the stuff. But, you know, it's going to be an interesting situation for the next couple of years. You're also, though, talking about companies that, you know, may have been all the rage, may still have a really good business, but maybe it's something that young people coming in, and and I'm saying this here on the radio, um, (laughs) are not that thrilled about not looking at, well, that's my future. This is something where I can build something. So even as you have all these older people leave, younger people are looking at these jobs that may be open, but going, yeah, I don't think so. Well, yeah, it's funny because, you know, I interviewed someone who is from a, uh, you know, an industrial company. Uh, You know, they, um, they do aluminum extrusion. Right. And so aluminum extrusion sounds like, you know, it's, it's something that started 120 years ago. This company started and people go, oh, that's such an old world, old industry thing. Why would I want to do that? Well, they make aluminum for space. X. They make aluminum for, you know, uh, the Defense Department. They are absolutely a cutting edge company, but you wouldn't know it unless you got in there and you saw it. So I think a lot of companies, I mean, everyone has to, you know, keep up with technology or they're going to fall off. So uh, I think what companies need to do is they need to do a better job of marketing themselves and, you know, pushing, saying, you know, sure, we seem like, you know, an old rust belt, blue collar organization, but here's the cool new stuff we're doing with AI. I think, uh, you know, that will help them certainly is, you know, it will help them attract the right people and will also help them be better at what they're trying to do. So let me ask you one last thing about this. And this is something we've gotten into over the last couple of years on these Labor Day shows because of the pandemic. There's more and more people who have gotten used to working from home. And they there are many reasons why some companies like this. They spend less on leases of space. They can hire people who live anywhere. They can hire people who live in places that don't cost as much to live in. So maybe the salary demands aren't going to be as pressing. And they can hire people who may have a significant other who um, loves their job where they are in North Platte, doesn't want to move to San Francisco, but can still be hired. But lately, companies have been demanding, not just Elon Musk, that you you get back in the office. So now as we look at the retirement tsunami and these people have to be replaced, is that something that's going to work in the favor of the employees who are out there to be hired to go to companies saying, look, um, yeah, I'm willing to do this, but you've got to meet some of my demands too? I do think it puts uh, employees or future employees in a much better negotiating position. Uh, I, because there are shortages and because, you know, everyone wants to hire, you know, fresh new talent because honestly, they'll work harder. <laughs> they'll work longer hours um, than old folks like me who go, nope, not doing it. Uh, so, yeah, so I do think they have to be more flexible. And it kind of irritates me, honestly, when you see stories about, you know, companies insisting all their employees come back to work full time in the office. It's like, no, that's dumb. Right. Sure. They need to come in the office some of the time because FaceTime is important. And, you know. You know, things like communications uh, are easier in person. But, I mean, people are so much more productive working at home on their own. Uh, so it has to be, they have to find the right mix. Dan Tynan has been editor-in-chief of Yahoo Tech, executive editor of PC World, has written for more than 100 publications. His piece, you can look it up online on Forbes on the retirement tsunami, is what brought us to this conversation today. Dan, thank you so much. Stay with us for more of the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. This is the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Unions, seemingly doing a slow disappearance for years, especially in the private sector, seem to be making a comeback. 
There have been major strikes this year in the entertainment industry by SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild. Then there's union battles at Amazon, and especially at Starbucks, run until recently by Howard Schultz, who briefly ran for the presidential nomination of the usually union-friendly Democratic Party. Young people seem especially interested in unions. Until a few years ago, unions were something they associated with their grandparents. So are unions making a comeback, or are these out-of-the-ordinary events in what may still be for unions a rather bleak landscape? Tom Kochel is professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He's also author of Shaping the Future of Work, a Handbook for Action and a New Social Contract. Tom, interest in unions just five or six years ago was about one-third of the population. By 2017, it was up to half. According to one recent poll, it's up to 70%. Now, what is going on? Well, it's a very significant increase. We haven't seen anything change like this since the 1970s, really. It's always been at about a third of the workforce that would join a union if given a chance. And as you said, now it's well over 50%. And basically, this is a result of the pent-up demands of decades of wage inequality and stagnant wages in the face of business doing well, making good profits, the economy rolling along, and workers have been left behind. And the pandemic, the tight labor markets, all of these pressures have come together to say, now's the time for workers to exercise the power that they begin to feel again, that they haven't uh, uh, had an opportunity to uh, draw on for many decades. So it's a combination of things, but it's really the explosion of these pent-up demands that have been building for a long time. Some of these wounds corporations are claiming in their battles against unions seem to be pretty self-inflicted. David Zaslav of Warner Discovery got compensation of $246 million just two years ago, last year, $40 million. That and similar situations at other companies have people who just a few years ago scoffed at needing a union changing their mind about that. Well, absolutely. Workers are fed up with two things. One, the inequality and, and, and the the payment uh, of exorbitant salaries to CEOs. That's one thing. But the second thing is that companies have made good profits in the last several years, while the rate of inflation and all the pressures of the pandemic have been felt by workers. And once again, they feel left behind. And so it's the combination of high rates of inflation, companies making good profits, workers feeling left behind that say, now's the time to catch up and to bring some equity back into our labor market. There's also simple need here, too, because initially it seems unrelated. The price of homes, both rental and buying, because of a lack of inventory, is driving up what people need to just keep a roof over their heads. Middle-class families, low-income workers, everyone is feeling that pinch. Housing costs, food costs, uh, fuel, and the, the basic uh, necessities have all just skyrocketed uh, and uh, wages have not kept up. And so uh, this is a reaction both in terms of the financial pressures workers are facing, but also the stresses on their lives that the pandemic um, uh, brought home to roost. Uh, The challenges of dealing with children at home, the challenges of uh, both parents having to balance schedules uh, in very difficult times, the challenge of uh, being called an essential worker And uh, then when the pandemic eases, uh, there's no real sense that, well, we we owe you uh, something for all of the sacrifices and risks that you absorb. So when you put all that together and and workers see their employers making good money but not sharing it with them, that's what's producing um, these uh, uh, increased in organizing, 
increase in strike activity, increase in collective bargaining agreements being rejected because neither the company leaders or in some cases the union leaders really understand the full range of issues that workers are concerned about today and the deep frustration that they're uh, expressing. Now, trying to predict the future of unions and work, it's a little complicated here, Tom, because there are countervailing forces that make things hard to predict. So on the one hand, you've got artificial intelligence getting better. That may make many jobs disappear. On the other hand, companies are either having to make wages and conditions better or just die off because the retirement of baby boomers and the move to stop immigration has caused a huge shortage of workers that has hit many industries hard, especially hotels and restaurants. Well, there's no question that uh, the worker shortage from the reduction in immigration took its toll in the last several years. Now, that's easing some and we're seeing uh, a growth in immigration and we're seeing uh, more people come back to work from the pandemic. So the labor supply is now beginning to come back uh, to where it was before the pandemic. So that's good news, good news for employers, but it's also good news for the economy because it just adds productivity and uh, and shares more economic growth across, across the country. So some of those pressures are easing, but you're right. The new concerns around artificial intelligence and uh, generative technologies, the chat GPT and so forth. These are issues that um, are front and center in workers' minds today. We see that in the strike uh, in uh, um, the entertainment industry. The writers are out on strike. SAG-AFTRA, the entertainers themselves are out on strike. And those strikes won't be resolved until workers in those unions feel that they are getting their fair share of the productivity that they help to produce and that they rebuild the income that they lost because of the growth of streaming technologies and other things that reduced what they call their residual income. That is the income from reruns of, of, of productions that they helped to produce. The shutdown of offices during the height of COVID also had an effect. More people got to work remotely. Some companies actually learned to like that. They needed to lease less space. That cost them less money. Now they're letting go of that space, and they can recruit people from anywhere, no matter where a prospect's spouse might work. That may no longer have any effect on their choice of employment. And some salary demands are actually a little lower because, yeah, if you work from Fargo and not San Francisco and paying the rents there, you can have a pretty excellent life. But some companies are saying no to remote work, and a lot of people are going, well, you know, with low unemployment right now, I can find another company that will let me work remotely, so goodbye. And that has changed expectations in some arenas as to whether the employer or the employee is holding the cards. Well, there's no question that uh, we're not going back to the uh, pre-pandemic work system where everyone was expected in the office or uh, wherever the workplace happened to be uh, on a, a five days a week or nine to five or whatever the schedule was. Uh, the, the flexibility that we learned to value during the pandemic, the improvements in technology that allow us to engage in uh, work remotely through Zoom and its, its competitors, all of this has opened up new options for the workforce and new options for employers. The smart employers are learning how to balance the flexible work and the expectations for some time at home with some time uh, on the work site. So workers can still have the social experience um, that brings them together. That innovation that comes from being there present on the job uh, is is also uh, possible. And so that the young workers who are getting uh, uh, socialized into the organization 
learn about how things get done in their place of work. And so there's going to be a hybrid work system in our future for a long time and for the foreseeable future for many, many workers. And we just have to get used to managing in this hybrid way, part at work, part uh, uh, at a distance, some jobs at a total distance, but those are a small number uh, of, of, of jobs and a small proportion of the workforce that will be working uh, totally uh, 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 remotely. Some of these battles are kind of hard to figure, and Starbucks is interesting and unusual. Howard Schultz, who I mentioned earlier, no longer the CEO at Starbucks, but still a major leader of the company, has long gone out of his way to extend many benefits to employees, although critics say he has less concern for day-to-day work issues. But you know, whoever is right or wrong in that battle, he has made clear that he takes unionization personally, not objecting to many of the things the workers want, but objecting to the idea that they don't appreciate what he personally has done for them. And why would they need a union when they've got him? And that's not at all the kind of situation we expected in the past, but it's become a big one. Howard Schultz is the poster child for what's wrong with American management. Uh, Only in America do managers feel that the the efforts on the part of employees to gain a voice and form a union are some sort of indicator of management failure. You don't find that in Europe. It's taken for granted that, well, if workers want to join a union, uh, they should be entitled to do so and we'll work with them. We call them social partners in Europe. But here you have these pitched battles because uh, executives like Howard Schultz, who has done a good job at Starbucks of of building an organization, of providing jobs uh, for young people and others and and often very good jobs. But uh, they don't recognize that that, that Howard Schultz does not speak for his workforce, does not understand its workforse, does not be, is is not able to articulate uh, their expectations to others in the organization and get things done for them. They want a voice. They don't want to uh, uh, necessarily oppose Starbucks. They're not, they don't hate Starbucks, but they want to be respected. If they're called partners, they want to be treated as partners. That's what's going on in America across the country, and Starbucks is the uh, uh, poster child example of it. But are unions really making a comeback? We're going to get deeper into this coming up on the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Good to have you back with more of the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. One of the more unexpected events of the American economy in the last several years has been the comeback of unions. And we've been talking about this with Tom Cochin, who is professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management and author of Shaping the Future of Work. One of the things that's led to Costco's success is that they were always employee friendly. When asked by other companies who did not believe in that, their leaders answered one of the biggest costs they used to face was retraining. And just by paying better and making conditions better, their retraining costs have been reduced by so much, it has made up for what they've extended in wages and benefits. It also gives them people moving up into management who actually know the business from the ground up. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Costco's success relative to Walmart and other competitors is partly because they hold on to their workforce. They train that workforce on a continuous basis by expanding their job responsibilities, giving them an opportunity to rotate to new departments so that they learn about 
more and more uh, parts of the business. And therefore, they build the human capital and the social capital needed to get promoted into management ranks. And they stay with the company because the company treats them fairly, respects them, provides good career opportunities. Compared to a company that's always trying to minimize labor costs, control the workforce, avoid unions, therefore you get uh, higher rates of turnover and then they've got to rechurn the workforce. They never get the level of productivity that a Costco gets from its management practices. If I say unions to someone in their, say, 60s or 70s, they're going to think of the top-down, heavy-handed unions, the days of Jimmy Hoffa. Now, much of the union movement is very different. It is bottom-up. It's people at an individual Starbucks, individual Amazon warehouses, talking specifically about their conditions. So what we're talking about with unions, for the most part now, is very different from what we were talking about a couple of decades ago. The dynamic sector of the labor movement is coming right from the workplace, from young workers in particular, from young professionals to be more specific, uh, uh, from women more uh, than from men, from minorities, African-Americans and Hispanics, more than uh, white workers. And so the face of labor is changing. The approaches uh, that labor is using to gain a voice is much, much more grassroots oriented than top-down oriented. Now, there still is a need for national unions and for leaders and for resources that unions can bring to bear, but there has to be a better linking of those resources and those organizational capabilities with the expectations of the workforce itself. Workers today don't want a union bureaucracy bearing down on them any more than they want a business uh, bureaucracy bearing down on them. And I've seen that uh, uh, effectively in the retail sector and in the hospitality sector and in the healthcare sector, where uh, people are much, much more likely to be led by their peers than by uh, someone who's twice their age. Which has brought about some interesting things and a learning curve for the unions as well as corporations, because these new younger people interested in unions do not have an interest in some of the same issues unions used to push. A lot of them don't care about seniority. They don't think just because somebody's been there forever, they deserve to get more, which is what unions and even companies always thought. Now unions are also much more okay with technology. Yes, it replaces some jobs, but it creates others. And young people are more comfortable with it, embrace it, know that they're going to have to constantly learn new things over the course of a career. So we are much more back to basics about conditions and compensation instead of things like fighting technology, fighting for seniority, a lot of issues used to define the union-corporation relationship. Both unions and companies have to learn how to engage young workers because they do bring a, a different set of expectations. Sometimes they're unrealistic expectations. Let's face it, uh, they've never had to uh, be on a picket line and face uh, the economic realities of a strike. And so that uh, brings some realism to bear in some of their expectations. But uh, what we're seeing is a very healthy expansion of the issues that are on the table today. Technology is at the top of that list of new issues. Workers understand new technology. They're, they're ready to engage it. They're ready to use technology to improve both the organizational performance and to improve the quality of their work. But that means we've got to give them a voice in how we design the technologies, how we bring them in, how we change the way in which we work to be compatible with the new technologies and train workers as we go along to make sure that, that uh, they have the skills to use these new uh, gadgets in front of them. That's the world of work that we are seeing today. That's why it's so creative, so exciting, but so, so difficult for many of uh, our existing um, management 
uh, leaders and their doctrines and the way in which they've operated in the past, and for some labor leaders who uh, also don't quite have the technological skills and can't quite relate to some of the demands for time off and flexible scheduling and uh, um, less uh, respect for seniority that we're seeing in the modern uh, younger workforce. Well, it has been a fascinating thing to watch. And of course, it'll be fascinating to see over the next few years as to where this goes. Tom Koken is professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management, author of Shaping the Future of Work, a handbook for action and a new social contract. Tom, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Gil. It's been a pleasure. Stay with us for more of the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. Here's more of the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Work. It's what we talk about on Labor Day. And when you were a kid, what kind of work did you imagine yourself doing? Firefighter, astronaut, president, guy in a chicken suit running around a baseball diamond. Now, now, wait, that is a job people want, though it's not something that necessarily gets you any points when you go to the unemployment office and say that's what you've been holding out for. Zachary Crockett is a journalist with Freakonomics, famed for showing us the economics of everyday things. And he's looked into this. Zach, welcome. How are you? Good to be here, Gil. Thanks for having me. Does Freakonomics have a mascot, maybe an Excel spreadsheet with a funny hat or something that runs around? <laughs> well, it's funny. In the in the course of reporting this story, uh, Bonnie Erickson, one of the mascot designers we talked to, uh, has a few sitting around in her attic that she's looking to sell. So we're, we're looking into it. <laughs> okay, let's, let's start. We'll get into the history of this. And Bonnie is an important part of the history of this. But sports mascot is an actual job that a lot of people have. I was at a AAA minor league game in Albuquerque a few weeks ago. They had a mascot running around. I mean, this is a thing. Yeah, you know, it's it's a mascot is something everyone has experienced. We've all seen a mascot's antics on the fields. You know, we've watched them shoot T-shirts into a crowd or sprint down the sidelines. But uh, behind every costume, there's this whole hidden universe of mascot drama uh, IP battles, lawsuits. There are the performers who have to go through these intense, rigorous trainings and boot camps. And then there's the inventors who spend hundreds of hours designing the costumes. So if you peel back the layer uh, behind any everyday thing, uh, including mascots, there's really sort of a fascinating economy behind them. There were always mascot symbols. Very often that you had somebody dressed up in a bear suit or something who would, you know, work with the cheerleaders or something like that. But a guy in a mascot suit did not really make it until Ted Giannoulis, who was known at the time as the KGB chicken, as he was called after a radio sponsor, not after the Soviet spy agency, <laughs> really became a personality because well, he was really funny. Mascots have been around for, for a long time, but they weren't always performative. They were more sort of ornamental. They'd come out on the field for a few minutes and then sort of rescind back into the shadows. And the costumes were terrible for performers. They were really uncomfortable. They were made out of plywood. They were hot. Um, and it really wasn't until Ted Giannoulis came along. Uh, he was this college kid in the 70s. He was hired to wear this chicken suit as a promotion for a radio station in San Diego. And uh, he eventually started performing at events. He made his way onto the field. He was this really raucous character. He would chug beer through his beak and he'd lay eggs on fans that had little prizes in them. And uh, at the time, the San Diego Padres baseball team, their attendance was the lowest in the league. Uh, and by the end of that summer that Ted was performing there, their attendance doubled. It was just a massive hit. And teams really started to take notice 
that mascots could be a big revenue driver for the team. Now, Ted, as great as he was, you point out some of his antics and, and they were wild stuff. That not only led to much more popularity for people going to San Diego baseball games because they knew even if the game were a dud, they'd be entertained by the chicken. But there were lawsuits. I mean, there were there were fans that did not appreciate things that Ted would do. Yeah, Ted. Uh, so San Diego chicken, like any mascot uh, over the years, ran into trouble. Mascots, uh, you know, by nature, they're very physical. They interact with fans a lot. So mascots often get in trouble. Uh, we specifically looked at the Philly fanatic, the mascot for the Philadelphia Phillies. I mean, over the years, uh, the fanatic was involved with in $3 million of, of lawsuits. Uh, he, he was sued for shooting a hot dog gun into a fan's face, uh, for accidentally, uh, kicking a pregnant woman. Um, all kinds of things can go wrong, uh, just because of the physical nature of being a mascot. And that liability can actually come back to bite teams in the in the in the butt. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about what happened with Ted and the chicken was it was still looked at pretty much as a one off. I mean, you know, people would sometimes hire Ted in the chicken suit to come to other places and do promotions and things like that because they thought, well, there's only this one funny guy in a mascot suit and that, you know, he was pretty much it. So you mentioned the Philly fanatic, and that is the one that really I think started off the mascot craze. And and you talked to the woman who designed it, the guy who made it happen. Tell us the background of the Philly fanatic. Sure. So the Phillies had sort of an attendance problem. Young people weren't attending games. Um, and baseball was sort of going through this stagnant phase with attendance. And they saw what was happening on the other side of the country in California with the San Diego chicken. And they decided to revamp their mascot. At the time, they had a mascot already. They were called Philadelphia Phil and Philadelphia Phyllis. They were these uh, revolutionary era. They, they wore like revolutionary garb on the field and they weren't a fan favorite. So um, in the late seventies, the Phillies ownership uh, decided to up their game and they went out and recruited uh, this legendary woman, uh, Bonnie Erickson, who at the time worked on the Muppet show. Uh, you know, she, helped invent characters you might know, like uh, Miss Piggy. <laughs> and she was really a master of designing these incredible characters. They commissioned her to design a new mascot for the team. And the Philly Fanatic was born. Now, that's very nice that they have this, you know, wild looking and, and Philly Fanatic is, you know, charactered now instead of the boring mascots they had. But they still needed a performer that would make that mascot come alive. And they found that really in the office. Yeah. Dave, this guy, Dave Raymond at the time, he is an intern in the promotions office. Uh, he's working a summer internship, stocking shelves and doing all the entry level work. And, um, the front office, you know, he, he sort of had the right personality. He was boisterous, energetic. And they said, you know, it worked for the San Diego chicken. This, this 20 year old college kid was recruited to wear this costume. We need someone young who has energy and they tapped him to, Don this suit. He was totally game for it. He went out to New York and visited Bonnie Erickson's uh, workshop, which he described as sort of a Geppetto type workshop with disembodied heads and arms and foam eyeballs all over the place. And he was fitted and um, he became for many years the force behind the Philly fanatic inside of the costume. So we're talking now about a couple of people who turn the mascots 
into a business. And let's start with Bonnie Erickson, who designed the Philly Fanatic, because this turned out not to be a one-off thing for her either. Yeah. So the the mascot design process, uh, it begins with coming up with a backstory, sketching out various iterations on pads. You design a costume. Eventually, they settled on... It's sort of hard to describe the Philly Fanatic, uh, but essentially, he's this green flightless bird from the Galapagos Islands. That's his backstory. He's 300 plus pounds. Uh, he's sort of this... Bonnie Erickson told me he was designed to be on the move. He he was designed to be mobile and just by nature of moving his body around, it made people laugh. He had these tufts of fur on him. Um, but Erickson did something very smart in the early days of designing the mascot. What she did is she designed this costume and she gave the team two options. One is that they could buy the copyright and the costume to the character for about 5000 bucks, or they could just buy the costume. And unfortunately for the Phillies, they just chose to buy the costume for $3,000. And as a result, Bonnie Erickson retained the copyright, the IP behind the costume itself. And uh, because of that, when the, when the Fanatic became popular and took off and, you know, all the plush toys and t-shirts and coloring books around the Fanatic were sold, she actually took in the lion's share of the revenue because she still retained the copyright. So the first year alone that the fanatic was in the stadium, it brought in something like $2 million in merchandise sales. And Erickson really benefited greatly from that. Hold on before you go out and rent a mascot costume. We've got more in this just ahead on the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. We have more now on the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we continue our talk with Zachary Crockett of Freakonomics on one of the weirdest Labor Day stories there is sports mascots. I, I know how hard this is, and uh, from personal experience, without going into the full story, which would take longer than this interview to even begin to explain, when I was at NBC News one day a long time ago, uh, I showed up for work in a head-to-toe chicken costume, as as did my um, audio guy. And um, there, in fact, there's a new book out, an autobiography by a, a newsman at NBC back then, Alan Walden, that actually has a picture of this momentous event. Oh, no. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, things come back to haunt you. But that all <laughs> said, the point of even bringing that up was, so I spent a good part of that day in this head-to-toe chicken costume. I was just wearing, you know, underpants. And um, it was hotter than living hell in that thing. And I wasn't dancing or anything. I was just kind of like, you know, walking around and and then taking off my wings and uh, typing. But it's it's miserable in those things. Have they changed that? Have they made that any easier? Costumes today are designed to be, you know, more breathable and uh, more mobile, more flexible than, than they ever have been. That said, you know, there's only so much you can do when you're donning a, you know, a heavy furry suit uh, and doing physical feats uh, on the field. Um, it, costumes are much better than they used to be. And, you know, to put up with all of this, uh, we should say the top mascots that you see in professional sports teams, they're compensated pretty well. Um, according to Raymond, you know, the starting salary can be somewhere around eighty-five dollars to $100,000 a year. The top performers like the Denver Nuggets, Rocky the Mountain Lion, the NBA team, he earns probably upwards of $600,000 a year. Uh, mascots get pay incentives for attending other events and um, you know selling tickets in some cases. Um, so they can be paid pretty well. Uh, the minor league performers, unfortunately, do not get paid very well. They might make 
50 to 100 bucks per game and they're doing all of the same work um it's a very it's very hard to ascend the ranks only a very small percentage of performers end up making it to the to the major league teams it's it's almost as hard if if not harder uh just on a percentage basis of success to make it into the league as a professional mascot as it is a professional athlete there's just only so many jobs. Yeah, you wonder about that, whether it paid better than, you know, the guy who spins the arrow in the corner trying to get you to go to a pizza joint because, yeah, hey, yeah, if they can afford a guy who can spin an arrow, the pizza's got to be good, right? So there's that. But I watched the guy at the Albuquerque game. Albuquerque was going through a real hot spell. And I, and I wondered about, wow, how much is he making? And, you know, is he having fun or is he dying in that thing? Does he think, boy, someday, you know, I'll, I'll get to Phoenix and and uh, work for the Diamondbacks? And is that something you would even want to do in Phoenix weather? I would wager that inside of that costume, uh, there's quite a bit of ambition. I I think that uh, a lot of these mascot performers, especially at the minor league level, they they dream of making it to the big leagues, just like uh, an athlete toiling in the minors would dream of making it to the big leagues or an umpire. Um, It's a difficult, long pipeline, but, um, you know, people go into this trade for the passion of performing, and um, it's sort of a, a rarefied group of people who <laughs> who enjoy wearing a hot, sweaty costume all day and entertaining the masses. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Gil. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.